Hello. Hello. How are you? Happy birthday for yesterday. Thank you very much. How is it to be 80? <laughs> Old and decrepit. <laughs> you coming on Saturday? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, you look very smart. Do I? Don't feel it. <laughs> I was just talking to my daughter Naomi because I said, it's coming in, I was just... Oh, am I, am I disturbing the call though? Yeah, no, I'll just finish that. Oh, no, okay. I'll just show you these pants that I've been given, they're really exotic ones, what do you mean? This one. Oh, wow. Are you feeling comfortable? Yep. Okay, let's go. How do you remember your first ever experience on Kinder Scout? My first experience was as a, a youngster, about ace, about 13. When I came to Edel on the school camp from Stockport, and uh, for all of us, it was pretty well, it was the first excursion into the countryside for all, for us, and it was a, a school camp for about a week. At that time, of course, there was no access to Kinder Scout; it was very much private moorland. Um, but Fred Herman, who had the local pub, got permission to take some of us up onto Kinder, and that was mine first experience of of the mountain. And what was that experience like? Well, for a start, it was a really cold, wet, windy day, so it was hardly uh, amenable weather. However, it was so unique to us, so completely different to anything we'd experienced in the town. First experience of, of, of wild country, if you like. And uh, so for some of us, some liked it, some hated it, as you'd expect. Uh, those who hated it never came back again. But we, had, we also had a, a form master at Stockport School who was a very keen walker. And he also was responsible for my, if you like, my love of the countryside because he took us few at a time, walks the weekend down to Hartington and then we'd have a week away. So sort of walk. And he basically he was sussing people out and seeing which ones were going to be there for the long term. And I was. Some of them just couldn't wait to get off Kinder. Uh, and thankfully that's the case because if every kid after every school in this country came to kinder we'd be inundated I think. And did that first experience spark something for you? Not immediately, I don't think I was aware of the impact it was going to have on me. Certainly it, it was a novel experience because I mean Stockport's the suburbs you know, in fact from my home I could almost see kinder in fact, from the west, the east side of Stockport, you could. So I suppose it was there, staring me in the face, saying, "Come and come and come and share it with me." And um, yeah, and I think it was some while. I mean, I used to do all sorts of jobs at weekends and things like working at race, motor racing track, Alton Park, and all sorts of things. There's nothing to do with the countryside really. And I think I don't know what really sparked the first excursion, but it was, I think, perhaps having been on Kinder for that first time. I wanted to know a little bit more, and so I started walking with friends. Can you remember what Kinder Scout looked like back then? Yeah, to a certain extent. Of course, the rocks are, are, are irremovable. They're going to, always going to be there, I suppose. The biggest change on Kinder, without a shadow of doubt, has been vegetation. Because certainly when I went up onto Kinder, it was it was very peaty, wet peat, very damp, and you had to wallow through the peat, wherever. And there were many attempts after that to bring vegetation back, most of them unsuccessful, until the most of the future came in and they started to change, bring re-vegetate re the top. They found ways of keeping the water up there. Because 
what a lot of people don't realise is that, you know, when I, and I didn't, when you first went up onto Kinder, the rocks were dark grey and, and are dark grey. Um, however, that's not the natural colour of the rock. The natural colour of the rock is, is like a light, light tan and it's oxidation that's made it dark. Plus, and this is an important ingredient, pollution from Manchester and Sheffield, South Yorkshire and Lancashire. Because all, I mean, at early days when I was very young, going to school in Stockport, we had the smog when the, the, basically all this dust and cloud and just dropped on the city. You couldn't see, you had to feel on the road to go to school, and it was just heavy pollution. And all that pollution went, went into the peat, changed the colour of it. And later, when, when the, the water company and so on, and the National Trust and National Park came together to look at how to revegetate it, one of the people who came in very earliest were the water companies because the water companies were suffering incredibly from the amount of pollution in the peat because it was dropping and it was storing it in the peat and then it was letting it out into the reservoirs and they're having many many times in a in a in a, in a period of time they'd be, they'd be um, trying to take take the lead out and so on and it had took the most of the future and bringing the vegetation back to change it to what it is now now it does not resemble the kinder I used to walk on as a 12, 13-year-old. Why did you decide to become a Peak District National Park Ranger? Well, I suppose that's in that period of time when I, when I was at school and we'd been to walk on kinder. I didn't walk on kinder again for some time afterwards. The, the biggest impact for me after that was when Tom Tomlinson, who was the first National Park Warden in, in Britain, came to Edale. He was a youth hostel he ran the youth hostel for quite a long time. But then he got the job as warden and uh, he had to basically put together a, a number of people to basically look after kinder and to enforce bylaws and so on. Um, and to do that they had to basically get hold of young recruits, volunteers who loved the countryside and were prepared to help to safeguard it. And uh, Tom came to the school in Stockport and, and talked about this embryonic ranger service, why it was there. And it just appealed to me, you know, to be, to be out on the hills and actually doing a useful job at the same time was, was quite important. To start with, I, I couldn't act as a warden because I was too young. You had to be 18. And uh, that, that miffed me a bit because I, I was raring to go but couldn't go. But there was a rambling club in Ashton near Manchester called the Penang Rambling Club and uh, they, what they did, they went out one weekend as, as voluntary wardens and the other weekend they go climbing or potholing or whatever. And uh, that appealed to me and so, so I, I learnt my early climbing and potholing from those days. Uh, and we used to other, do other things in between but most of the time was, was warden. We'd come out on a Saturday or Sunday, go into the Nags Head where Fred Herman had a big wall chart and a map and the, uh, Tom Tomlinson, the head warden, would brief everybody. And clubs like the, the um, Rambling, Ramblers Association of Sheffield, Ramblers Association of, of uh, Manchester, they uh, were committed basically to providing warns as well because they'd been fighting for access and they couldn't really walk away from it. So, and they did. The problem was that you'd have a patrol going out with perhaps 20, 30 people in it, which, which was good for the people, but not very good for looking after kinder. Um, so the the idea, I think Tom then thought the idea about having part-time paid 
ranges or warms as we were then. And uh, you would you would turn up at the, the nag's head, tell Tommy you were there to do a patrol, and he'd give you a patrol to do. You'd be given an armband, green armband to go on, you know, um, and a little handbook and a letter of authority signed by the National Park. So once you've got that, you're, you're a ranger. And so off you'd march on to Kinder. And I have to say that in those days, we were pretty zealous, I think. You know, looking back, we were pretty much under, we will enforce these bylaws, come what may, we're going to protect Kinder, whatever, whatever. Of course, that's, that's not realistic. You know, as we know today, you have to get people on your side, you know, and so on. So that's, uh, I suppose, how I started to go on to Kinder regularly was as a, as a volunteer because then, because there were about half a dozen was hammering at the door of, the, of Tom Tomlinson saying we want to be volunteer wardens. In the end, he said, well, OK, we'll do that, but we had to wait until we were 18 legally to enforce bylaws. So um, um, we then, I helped to form a club of voluntary rangers who weren't in big rambling clubs. So we had the Peak Wardens Association and we had the Kinder Wardens Association, which was the, on the Hayfield side. And we used to go off and see visit other national parks and, and, you know, basically help Tom to, to produce a well-trained core of, of Walden Wardens as we were there. And what did that training involve? Right, well, it was, it was done over uh, six weekends. It was held in Edel School. Um, there were six modules. I can remember them all. One was map and compass, navigation. Second one was uh, bylaws and enforcement of bylaws. Third one was first aid and mountain rescue. Um, the next one would be, uh, let me think, well, knowledge of national parks. Basically the essentials that were necessary to help people to enjoy it. Well, I mean, the idea was to help it, that people to enjoy it, but also at the same time make sure that people didn't misbehave themselves. And, uh, you know, you've got young hooligans out from Manchester and Sheffield, uh, <laughs> you know, climbing over the walls, rolling stones down hillsides, t turning turning uh, the face of the farmers down here to a bright red with anger. Um, and it was it was a very much a job for wardens to try and balance it out. The farmers expected the wardens to stop the problems and, you know, they, they, we had to do it. So, yeah, that, that was the start of, if you like, a semi-professional and what then happened was that as some of the rambling clubs dropped off in their support and so on, it came down to a small core. So in order to keep the small core, Tom took took them on as part-time paid. So I became a part-time paid patrol warden. The thing was, because I was paid, not a lot of money, I have to say, it was a commitment to come out at weekends and, and work for the National Park. And it also meant that there were a number of people who were part-time part, part paid rangers who were destined to become full-time rangers eventually. It was a new, it was a new um, job completely when it started. There was no such thing as wardens in this country. Completely novel idea. And so, you know, all, the, all these ingredients came together to produce, you know, the core of rangers that we have. What do you think was the core reason that you wanted to take part in that sort of work, even as a volunteer or when you weren't earning a lot of money through that? What was at, what was in your heart that wanted, that made you want to do it? Kinder. I mean, it's, Kinder dominated everything. 
I mean, we had wardens eventually on Bleaklow, we had them on Black Hill, we had them all over the park. But Kinder had always been the iconic place, always. Even when that first day that we went up with Fred Herman in that wet, cold, wet day, there were not wardens around at that time, but there'd been the history of the mass trespass. So there was a connection there, definitely. And uh, that, that really was the seed, if you like, that led to part-time paid rangers and so on. And, and in my case, um, a full-time job. Um, and full-time job was completely different, of course, to a part-time job. You know, people think, oh, it's the same. It's When you've got a full-time commitment to something, you're legally bound. You've got to be trained properly. You've got to do the job properly. Um, and again, we were, we were basically creating a new profession. And uh, it all goes back to looking up to, to the ramparts of kinder and thinking, you know, this is a great job in a great place. What was your life like during this role? As a part-time ranger? Well, I suppose I went from working at racing circuits like Alton Park and, and so on to, to a commitment to a job. Um, and I think all of us who, in those days, we used to just love walking on kinder and learning about it because... There were no guidebooks then because there'd never been a legal right to access anyway. So it was a question of learning. And my, my first lessons, if you like, as a part-time ranger were just going out on patrol and seeing things we'd not seen before and try to find out about them, getting to know the wildlife, basically building up an expertise which, which made it possible to carry out the legal obligations uh, and also make it amenable to work with farmers. Because many of the farmers, quite rightly, were pretty irate. They'd, they'd been farming for donkey's years, and then all of a sudden somebody comes in with a load of old bylaws and some wardens and loads of public and swamped the place. Uh, they saw Kinder as a different, a different sort of place. It wasn't, I mean, it was attractive, obviously, but to them it wasn't. It was just it was their workplace. Very important to them. Dry stone walls were incredibly important for sheep farmers in this sort of area. And yet, you know, every weekend there'd be, there'd be hooligans, as we call them, rolling stones down the hillside and demolishing walls. And uh, you, you could see why it was necessary to have rangers. And it was l sometime later that we developed other skills in, in the sense of taking guided walks out, sharing kinder with the general public, if you like, and sharing, sharing our knowledge. Um, and that was very, very important. Very important, A, for the image of the ranger, because they were seen as being, you know, good guys who were helping you to enjoy it. For the farmers, it was somebody who was in there to help them to maintain the landscape as it was. So they, they were very important those early days. And what about your life around the job? You mean after I became a full-time arranger? Well, the life outside of your oh, job. Right. Oh, well, for me, it stayed on the track all the time. From Tom coming to the school, to my retiring, I just caught the bug and nothing was going to take me away. And when I I did reach a stage where I, I was a part-time paid ranger and I used to drive up and down the motorway to London where I worked at the time, I'd try to leave work at half past four on a Friday afternoon, drive up to Edale, put my tent up, camped over at Tollerbrook. We had a little campsite there that Albert Day used to let us use. It was only five minutes across the pub for a drink. 
Um, and uh, I used to drive up and down. Then on a, on a Sunday night after being out on Kinder, I'd get in my car and drive down to London. But um, on one particular occasion, I fell asleep on a motorway and nearly hit a bridge pillar. And that shook me rigid and I decided then that nowhere was I going to go out for a walk on a patrol on Kinder on Sunday and then drive straight down to London. So it coincided with um, with one of the full-time jobs coming up. And it was half the salary I earned in the civil service, but it was the uh, mountain up there was beckoning me. <laughs> My destiny was in the hands of others. <laughs> um, and I applied for a job, I was shortlisted. The same week I was interviewed for that, I was interviewed for the Brit to work for the British Antarctic Survey for looking after the, the dogs, the huskies, in the Antarctic. I was given, I was offered both jobs, um, but I decided that I had to stick with the range job for reasons that it was it was a full-time job, whereas the Antarctic Survey it was a three-year contract, and then you're out of a job. That was a key thing, but I think deep down, I, I, the destiny was taking its place. I wasn't having much to do with it; it was carrying me on. Um, and I got the, the job for the eastern edges, which was the climbing edges down the eastern side of the national park. And um, I, I got that job, very fortunate, um, lucky man to get it. Never looked back after that. that to me then I was totally committed. Um, my life and everything was committed to the Rangers. And then I went on subsequently to, to um, help to found the uh, Countryside Wardens Association for England and Wales, and then, then the International and, and so on. And when I retired, I was uh, I'd re finished as the president of the International Ranger Federation. So I, my life was always with rangers, and I always always came back to Kinder. Always came back to Kinder. What key things have you learned about the environment, the wildlife, and the communities that surround Kinder Scout? Well, the first thing uh, I suppose is that how the type of visitor has changed over the years. Um, I mean, when I started, when I was walking those very early days, <coughs> I used to have to go to a second-hand Army-Navy shops in Stockport and places like to get anything semblance, any semblance of a uniform or something to keep me warm and cold and, uh, and dry. Um, boots, you know, you had boots with clinkers on, there were little metal things around the edges and these sparks used to fly off me when I was running to catch the train on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think... Um, that's probably when things really started. I was totally committed then to rangers, anything to do with national parks. Because, you know, we're uh, here in the Peak District, we're a small national park compared to many uh, internationally. However, we, have the, we all have the same problems. We've got resource management, you've got protection, all these key issues that if we're going to have protected areas like Kinder and we're going to keep them, and you know those early days convinced me that we had to keep it. It was so important. I suppose mainly because of here, you know, the heart. It was, it was something about Kinder that, that grabs you, that that, that you, you you see parts of it that you don't normally know about. You get to know them. I can I can guarantee to go or take you on to Kinder tomorrow, and I'll find you a place you can sit down for an hour, and you won't see a soul. The revegetation making it easier to move across Kinder now, but uh, when it was before that, it was. Uh, it was a quagmire. I mean, 
you put your foot down on the peat and came back with a foot but no shoe on it or boot on it. Yeah, I know someone who's lost both of their trainers to a kinderbog. Yeah, still be there, no doubt, under the peat. <laughs> of course, the peat itself is, is fascinating. I mean, I could go on about interpretation of landscape and so on, but, uh, you know, kinder is unique in that it's a peatland plateau. There's something like 15 feet of peat there that's taken three and a half years to accumulate. The, uh, the sphagnum and so on doesn't rot, so that's why it builds up as peat. Uh, but underneath the peat I've found Neolithic flints, I've found pottery at the base of the peat, which means it's got to be in there 4,500 years at least. I find that fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's, you can learn so much about the people who crossed here 3,500 years ago, just as much as you can about the new people who are coming out after, uh, in the more recent years where people want to get out and get into a healthy environment away from COVID and so on. And, uh, you know, it's it's, um, it, it's it's brought a different type of people here, person here. So we've got a mix now. We've got people who perhaps have been around for quite a long time, um, fairly experienced. Some of them just solo walkers. Some of them were involved with the park. And um, basically that, that's, that's how it's developed. How have you learned about the environment and the wildlife here over the years? Have I learned it? Well, I suppose being with and talking to people with a lot, a lot more knowledge than I had at the time. I think you're not going to be proud, you've got to just get in there and get and learn and read books and, and get involved. Um, you know, it's many of the rangers who came, who came as volunteers here initially probably just had a, a, a small amount of knowledge of the wildlife and so on. Um, but after a while, you, you know, when you, on a winter, you go around a corner and a white hare comes and, as it has to me, runs over my knees as I've sat on the ground. You know, you just see that wildlife as just something very special. Um, and you see them change from the brown to the white coat in winter. Um, you know, I've been up there in winter when there's been snow down and I've been sat having a sandwich and, and a pygmy shrew, the smallest British mammal, has run over my legs and down a little hole while I've been having my sandwiches. These are all special moments because you realise that we we have to protect the entire environment, the whole ecosystem. It's no use just protecting part of it. It's all linked together. And when you realise that, then you look at the, the kinder in a much broader scape, landscape, if you like. It's, it's, it's a mixture of lots of things, all of which are in, in their own way are unique. Yeah, that's the kinder I love. How have you seen the area change over time? More trees. That's been the biggest single change, not only on kinder but in the valleys. I mean, when they started to take sheep off kinder, the seeds from trees were carried and embedded in the peat and, the gra and took off and grew. Before, they never got more than a few inches before the sheep would have eaten them. So there was never any chance of the vegetation really coming back in, in any big major sense. However, when the, the sheep were reduced, taken off, then what happened was just these sprouting trees started to take a life of their own. And if left to its own devices, the whole of kinder would, would eventually be covered in trees. People then have to decide, do you, do you want the trees there for ecological reasons? Do you want them there for scenic reasons? Do you want them there for aesthetic reasons? And everybody will have a different answer to that. Um, kinder's unique, and to me, it's going to evolve 
and there's going to be some man-made influence on it. There's also going to be a lot of natural influence as well. It's going to be fascinating to watch. But certainly, even down in, e in Edale, you know, the, 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 the trees there, from when I first came in the 50s, there's trees there, mature trees, 30, 40 feet high, that are gr uh, in a very good environment, a good growing country. And of course, you get lots of, of hardwoods, and if you get hardwoods and a mix with conifers, then you get different birds coming in, different mammals coming in, you get a different build-up of ecosystem. And it's getting richer all the time, it's coming back. And we can all do our bit to do help with that. Have there been any plants that you've seen pop up that are unusual? Yeah, there's, there's a t I have a tendency about a lot of people that you, if you're interested in botany, for example, you often finish up focusing on just one species. Or, you know, for example, people are interested in the sphagnum bog. Sphagnum is a fascinating plant. I mean, it, it was used in the First World War for treating wounds and for the soldiers because it's, it's antibacterial. Because, because it's antibacterial, it doesn't rot down. Because it doesn't rot down, it builds up as peat. Um, and you'll get areas, wet areas, where you'll get sundew growing, which is, again, is a, you know, a lot of people don't realise it's an insect-eating plant. We have two of them on kinder, we have butterwort as well. Um, and I suppose this is the thing about kinder, you can use kinder as a recreational area to walk, or you can use it like a laboratory or a, or a natural history area to learn from it. And, uh, you know, I love to take kids out on kinder and show them not the big landscape. The big landscape's always going to be there, you'll see it. It's the small nitty-gritty down to the kneeling down. That's when you see the real kinder, the heart of kinder. What do you think are its most unique characteristics? I know you've travelled a lot around the world and seen many national parks, so if you were to compare it... I would say... Yes, there are, there, are, there are differences, obviously, in every park. They've all got their own uniqueness. But there's some ecosystems which are fairly unique, and I, I do see the peatlands of Kinder and Bleaklow as being fa fairly unique. And although they would appear to be fairly sparse and barren of life, certainly the peat does, there is a lot going on there. And what's going on there is very important for the future of the, of the peatlands. Um, and, you know, with, with climate change and so on, it's a perfect place, as the most of the future are finding out, perfect place to monitor change in macrospecies and in macrospecies. And I think anybody, I would say to anybody who's coming here and getting, going to intend to walk on kinder on a regular basis, get to know the landscape, get to know the routes around, find a place, but then start to look at the, the core of the place. And you'll be surprised, there's so much of interest there. Can you please share a story that was particularly significant to you during your working life here? We had a dragon rapide, which is a twin wing plane um, that, that um, crashed in the middle of Kinder, near, near to uh, Forjack's cabin. And that came down and somersaulted, landed upside down and they just had broken legs, the, the pilot, and, and they were doing aerial photography. Um, and because plane crashes tend to accept, uh, um, attract a lot of visitors, understandably, I suppose, we always, if there's a plane crash, we used to try and get rid of the wreckage before the public got up there. 
um, and in the case of that, we we um, we got we got them them down fairly quickly. But it took a while for the for to get back and get the plane out of the way. When that burnt, it burnt of all iridescent colours, which sparkled from the the paint they used. I think. But then a, a, another extraordinary uh, incident with plane crashes um, was uh, coming back up the up the valley um, one night and there were lights in the sky and they were revolving and dro dropping down like little lights. And I thought, what on earth is that? And uh, when I got up to the village, I went home and about 20 minutes later, there was uproar in the village, there were fire engines, there were police cars, all sorts of things. And I went out and um, so there was a police officer there and he said, there's been a, a plane come down. Well, our fear has always been that, that um, you know, a plane on Kinder is a plane flying into Manchester Airport. It's the main route in. The fear is of having a major crash like that. And this, while we were talking, two guys went behind me into the pub. And then 50 minutes later, came out. This guy said, I think I've got two men inside here might, you might be interested to talk to. And these two guys were the people who were in the plane. It was a Cessna. One of them was a trainee. And he got caught in a downdraft. The plane had dropped about between two and four thousand feet, like a stone, hit the top of Pete uh, Broadley Bank, nosed over, turned upside down, landed upside down, and the two inside were were fine; they were safe, and they they got out. The only injury they got was from the head because they un unfastened the seat belts and forgot they didn't realise they were upside down. Um, and they came down, and they were the two that walked past us into the pub, and we didn't know until then. And we had the, that plane dismantled and, and off the hill by lunchtime the following day. So there have been some very lucky people on, on plane crashes. Helicopters, we had a lot. Have you ever got into any pickles yourself on Kinder Scout that you've learned from? Yeah, I actually had a very early lesson on, on Kinder and bad weather, and that was... Um, in those very early days when Tom was taking us on as part-time young rookie volunteers, there was a big scout camp in Warwickshire near Birmingham and um, it was a, a scout, international scout camp where they all came from all over the world and they'd asked Tom Tomlinson if he could provide some rangers to take some of these groups out on kinder. And I was I was a rookie, I was really, was really inexperienced and uh, finished up taking this group of foreign rangers up onto Kinder and um, had to walk across to the snake side and it was thick cloud but I was a, I was a ranger rangers don't go wrong wrong <laughs> wrong I I came to this edge and, and I realized I'd gone round in a circle and these German rangers saying indicating a circle I said no 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 they were set off again, went up into the moor, round in a circle, back to where we were again. For the third time, I had to go up and say, yes, you're right, we're lost. And I, I got in touch with somebody. We didn't have radios in those days. And uh, we eventually finished up down on the snake. We finished up camping there for the night instead of back in Edil. <laughs> that, that was a really good lesson for me. It took away any brash sort of I know it all after that. I never forgot that. It doesn't pay to be brash. More ways than one. Have you ever got caught out in some very extreme weather conditions? 
not caught out of being up there in the because sometimes we, we would we'd just test the system out and we'd go and camp ourselves and make snow caves or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I think I think I learned very early on that you know to be to respect kinder because if you don't respect it, it, it won't it, it will lead you down the nice wrong route for you. It'll bite you. <laughs> It'll definitely bite you. Yeah, definitely bite you. Why did you decide to live in Edel? I suppose Edel was always the epicentre of the National Park for me, even though it's not, it's not in the middle, it's, there's a big brigade around it. It was always the epicentre, it was always the, the place you would come back to, is where, where the rangers was founded, you know, it was, um, it was the start of the Penang Way, lots of reasons for it becoming an iconic place to be. And I suppose that's why I took, you start coming to Edel for a drink on a Saturday night, because I lived on the snake at that time, covered these edges. And we would meet, and uh, and it was one evening I was there that that um, George Garlic, who was the ten then chief ranger, said uh, that um, they're going to appoint another ranger as a, as a floating ranger who would go all around the park, filling in for the rangers who were on leave or duty. And I thought, oh, that that appeals to me because that way I'll get to know a bit more of the park, you know, because I didn't know a lot of the limestone areas uh, as well as I did the gritstone. Um, and I said to, to George, I said, well, you know, if you're going to swap around, I wouldn't mind swapping. And that gave me Kinder as my patch. And I'd always, I think, even I'd always wanted to be the range of a Kinder. You can only have one range of a Kinder, and if he stays in, in, in his job like I did for 36 years, and nobody else gets a chance. So um, I, I was very, very lucky in that respect. And I was living at the time at the top end of the Edale Valley near Jacob's Ladder. And... Um, I just got to know it even more than I had done in the past, and uh, then a, a house came on the market, a, a cottage in the village, I rented that for about six pound a week, and was uh, my feet were well and truly under the table then, uh, and then I subsequently moved to the village. And is it as you expected? Has it been as you expected to live here? The village. It's been more than I expected. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sure many people say this about where they where they live, but to me, it's it's a perfect place to live because it's it's beautiful area. It's within the easy distance of Manchester Sheffield. It's um, scenically one of the best places, um, and well, it's the, what makes it all, which bonds it all together for me, is a fantastic community. You know, we all have our own favourite places to live in and, and so on, but you know, I consider myself incredibly lucky that I, I'm, I'm living and working in a, in a place which is both beautiful and which has a wonderful community of people living there. And that means a lot to me, and uh, there's no way I would move from here. Do you have a favourite place on Kinder Scout? Interesting, that's a question I'm often asked. There are so many special places on Kinder. The one that perhaps uh, I would consider to be my favourite is um, the Woolpacks. Um, the Woolpacks near Cronebrook are um, the biggest exhibition of Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth <laughs> sculptures anywhere in the world, uh, and it's free entry. <laughs> Why is it that that is so special to you, that place? It's special because, A, it's unique. I mean, it's a collection of wonderful shaped boulders um, 
I mean, I often take the school kids, or did use take the kids from Edale up onto Kinder, and I used to love taking them there, and we'd have lunch there, and I'd say to them, right, while you're having your lunch, I want you each to go around and find a rock that you think resembles something, it can be an animal or, or whatever, and then we're all going to go around and you're going to tell us about your own particular... And that's what happened, they'd have the lunch, and then we'd walk down and say, so-and-so, you know, where's yours? Now, what do you call it? Boo-boo. Why boo-boo? Because it looks like boo-boo in, in the, the bear stories. And uh, they'd explain why, and, you know, and everybody would say, yeah, yeah, it does look like that. Uh, but at the same time, we'd be talking about the mountain hares that live in there in, in the winter, uh, that sleep around there, and um, I'd talk about and I'd broaden their, their knowledge a little bit more to tie each time. What's life been like for you since you stopped working? Interesting question, that, actually. <laughs> um, I've reminisced a bit by going back through some old stuff, old papers and so on. That's been fascinating, particularly some of the very early stuff. I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I've uh, collected lots of stuff over the years. I suppose that's one thing. Um, and reading. I've always been, I've always enjoyed reading and sort of catching up on some of that is, is good. Um, and while I can and, and I have been doing, can walk okay, um, you know, just walking local paths. I just, I, I think once, you, once you've been working somewhere, then and you'd stop working in that area. You, you have to think about other ways of connecting. Um, so the, I do things that I perhaps have not done in the past that like, I've always wanted to do. Maybe something like wildlife, you know, watching it for a while. But uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Do you feel like life has a different pace now? Oh yes, I mean, there's, there's yes, there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, there's, there's always, I think, particularly if you're interested in things like uh, you know, like wildlife, natural history, there's always going to be something novel, something new. Um, it's like you know, going up Grinds Road. There's a across the river from the main path. There's a a, a plant called the the butterwort every year, but it's not just an ordinary butterwort. It's it's a probably a Cornish butterwort, which means it was probably planted, probably by somebody from Grinds House or somewhere like that. But uh, I mean, those plants are fascinating. You know, they're insect-eating plants. The sticky leaves of the insects land and they get devoured. Um, so ch uh, opportunities to do that and to, to, to look at things close to. Sometimes, not just when we're older, when we're young as well, we tend to pass things by without thinking about it. And as you get older, you can stop and look at things in a little bit more detail. So I enjoy doing that. I still, I'd never, I'd never get fed up of walking just in the valley alone, never mind kinder. Where do you go for walks now? Because I know you don't go up on Kinder so much. These no, I days. tend to walk the the booths, you know, um, because there's decent paths to them. Um, I find it a bit difficult on sort of on a rocky ground at the moment. So, yeah, they're they're good, and you know, when you get older, the distance isn't important. It's it's what you see, you know, because as, as young young people, you know, you you just get off walking, eyes in front rucksack on your back, head off, and you, before you've gone sort of 10 minutes, you've probably passed two or three interesting things that you might have noticed if you'd been slower or... I'm not suggesting people walk slower on kinder, but <laughs> if you want to see things, you really need to keep your eyes out skinned, you know. And I enjoy doing that. 
I'm just relaxing knowing that I've got to do something. I can do it when I want to. Yeah, definitely. Are you still involved with the people that you've worked with and the networks that you've created over the years? Yes. Uh, in fact, it's nice. In recent years, I've had you know rangers I've worked with at the same age as me who've retired and so on. We, we can sit here and just re reminisce, and I enjoy doing that. You know, exchanging stories. Do you remember so and so? Do you remember certain characters? It's good because it keeps the brain active just thinking about these, these people. How do you think that you've made an impact on this place and its people? Oh, well, I like to think that the things that I've learnt about this area that I've been able to share them. I think that's important. There's no point in locking stuff up in your own brain and not sharing it. Um, I mean, it's like we've been talking about flints and things like that. I enjoy telling stories about things, bringing them alive, giving them meaning. I just think it's important. It's about transferring knowledge. We all do it, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes we don't do it and should do. Um, and, you know, it makes makes places more interesting. Certainly, I, it does for me. And uh, and I take that abroad, I mean, whether it's Australia or, or Alaska, or, Africa, it doesn't matter. I'm always, always, always looking for new things to learn and what happens and how things happen because they all, they're all interconnected. And, you know, one thing I learned very, very early on in, in starting the International Ranger Federation was that, that um, you know, people used to say, well, you know, what's, what's the common thing between a ranger and kinder and one in, in, in the Ngorongoro crater in Tanzania? The thing is, they're all in co they're all common. They're just at different shades of grey and different attitudes, and but but they're all all linked at the end of the day. And I like to I like to keep in that loop, and uh, I'm still consulted with the federation. Still keep contact. We have you know Zoom conferences now. We have a World Ranger Congress every three years. The next one's due to be in the Azores in the Atlantic. Portuguese territory. Whether I'll be at that, I don't know. Hopefully. Um, and I've got so, so many friends around the world now through the Federation. It's, I, I could talk to somebody in almost every country in the world and chat about common things. Do you still have an appetite for travel and adventure as such? I have an appetite, appetite for it, but whether I've got the stamina to do it is a question now. It's... Uh, but I think I'm slowly beginning to realise that now I need to basically cut out the flying, which is hardly uh, a good thing to do anyway. Um, and but keep in touch with other in other ways, you know. And, you know, just being consulted on things is is useful. I'm always believed in tapping the brains of all the people, and you know, they have so much knowledge, you know, there to share. Um, and the federation is all about sharing. It's about sharing, sharing our burden. It's about sharing expertise. It's about sharing experiences that will make a ranger a better person when he goes out in the wild, into the wild. And that to me is important. No use us sticking it in our brain in, in some little corner and not using it. Share it if you've got it. We all learn from sharing. So if there's some people listening that are interested in becoming a ranger or similar types of work, where do you think is a really fun and inspiring place to begin? 
I, I would say one of the range of services there where they are doing environmental education stuff and so on. I, I say that because that is the basis, the groundwork for a lot of stuff that rangers do. Sometimes they'll share that with kids on guided walks, sometimes they'll share it with other rangers of practical experience and practical um, work. Um, uh, there were some rangers at Longshore, National Trust Wardens, went to uh, a World Ranger Congress in Madeira uh, with me and uh, they transformed their lives. First of all, because they, they realised that they had so many people, much in common with rangers everywhere in the world, not just in the UK. Uh, and some of them have taken that on and have, have passed on their expertise and it's, it's become a big network, you know, representing something like... Um, seven or eight hundred associations now, thousands of rangers. And we also, uh, 31st of July every year is World Ranger Day. The United Nations acknowledge that, and that's the time when we all come together and we raise money for widows of rangers who've been killed in action, uh, for training and things like that. And I like to keep that, uh, that going as long as I can, you know. It's a big legacy. And finally, what makes you wild about kinder i'm going to go back to the first thing we talked about and that was my first trip to kinder because going on kinder when it wasn't open throwing it down with rain and wind howling by was i can picture it now um it had a lasting effect on me uh, on many it would have quite the opposite they'd say that's a horrible place it's just red. but no it's got it's got a it's got different moods Kinder has so many different moods. You could go up 20, 30 days and everyone would be different. That to me is a precious thing to have. And, uh, you know, we can all have that, that sort of experience. People who've never been here before, don't just walk up the road, get out of your car, walk up the road, have a look around the village and, and go back home. Go and walk by the riverside or, you know, dip in the pool or you know, go and rummage through the vegetation and see what's there, you know, little beetles, there's snakes, there's lizards, you know, you name it. Well, not snakes, not here, on the eastern side, but certainly, you know, we have uh, common lizards. People don't see them because they're, they're always looking ahead. Uh, I always think young little kids have a great advantage, six-year-olds, you know, they're, they're so much closer to nature. You know, then they see things that we just just miss. So yeah, I, I would. I'm wild about Kinder because it's it is wild, but not only is it wild, it's wonderful. Cool. <laughs> Cheers, Gordon. <laughs>